Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. He's got it. 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal. A perfect score. 10.0 for Dasha Kavanici. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen it is off the podium an olympics podcast coming to you today for a very special episode a bit of a unique one for us here on off the podium because we've got a dual interview love having two guests on the show but learning a little bit more outside of the realms of the olympics and a very inspirational story that led to a two-time olympian we have on the line today cliff meidel a two-time olympic american sprint kayaker competed in the atlanta olympics and the sydney olympics as well as being joined by dr malcolm lesavoy a plastic surgeon who pretty much helped Cliff on his journey to becoming a two-time Olympian. Now, Cliff suffered a horrific accident in 1986, was an apprentice plumber, was doing some jackhammering, and basically jackhammered into some power lines and nearly died. Essentially was dead for two minutes, but taken to hospital and survived. Lots of medical intervention was required, Uh, particularly when it came to his legs, very much nearly lost both of his legs. In came Dr. Lesavoy, who looked at Cliff, saw that it was an opportunity to help him out, and saved his legs, helped save his life as well, and the rest is history. So you're going to learn a lot about what happened, how Cliff was able to recover, and then the journey and the path that ultimately led him to compete in two Olympics. And not only did he compete in two Olympics, he went on to become the flag bearer for Team USA at the Sydney Olympics. So he carried the Stars and Stripes into Stadium Australia on that day, on the 15th of September 2000. And I mentioned in this chat that I actually just watched that footage from the Channel 7 coverage back in the year 2000 before this interview and uh, quite incredible to hear the Australian perspective of telling the story of Cliff and the uh, inspirational journey that he came through 14 years prior, nearly died, did die for two minutes, and then came back all the way through to compete in two Olympics. It's an incredible story, and this is an incredible chat that I know you are going to love every second of it. So here is our chat with two-time Olympic American sprint kayaker Cliff Meidel and Dr. Malcolm Lesavoy. Very exciting chat to bring you today here and off the podium. An inspirational chat about recovery, perseverance, and everything else that comes from it. We've got two guests on the show today to learn about this fantastic story. Our first guest, a two-time Olympic American sprint kayaker, competed at the Atlanta and Sydney Olympics. And at the Sydney Olympics, had the honour of carrying the flag into Stadium Australia for the US. Survived a 
terrible accident in the 80s to get to that point to compete in two Olympics and has an amazing career and story and everything else that comes with that. It's a pleasure, first of all, to welcome to Off the Podium, Cliff Mydell. Cliff, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having us. And also joining us, uh, a man who uh, very much helped Cliff on this journey, a, uh, a doctor with an esteemed career, was a chief of plastic surgery for 25 years at Harbour UCLA, published three books on plastic surgery, worked on a, a variety of television shows, other media, gained global recognition, and a very good friend of Cliff. And we're very much looking forward to hearing how he forms a part of this story as well. Please welcome to Off the Podium, Dr. Malcolm Lesservoy. Malcolm, first of all, thank you too for joining us here in Off the Podium. Thank you for inviting us. We appreciate it very much. I, I'm so excited to learn more about this story and for our, our listeners to hear more about it. Before, before we get into what happened and, and everything that came from that, we'd just like a bit of background from both of you, sort of where you were both at before coming into this uh, situation. I mean, Cliff, for you, first of all, the, the journey in the sport of kayaking. Were you a, a young athlete that got into kayaking young? I mean, were you a, a sporty athlete that was sort of trying your hand at everything? Give us a bit of a background on how you ended up as an Olympic kayaker. Uh, definitely by accident. That's the story right there. <laughs> I was, you know, I was a, I was a young kid, uh, like we all are, uh, aspiring young kids with a lot of dreams uh, in their minds. And, you, you know, we want to kind of go out there and, and mimic our heroes and for me, I, you know, played a lot of soccer growing up. So I did a lot of running sports uh, and uh, did a lot of that kind of stuff. But uh, I remember one time I was introduced to canoe paddling, outrigger paddling uh, when I was 16 years of age. But that was all of the experience that I had uh, doing that type of water sports. I mean, I did do some swimming and things of that nature, but uh, most of my sports were all focused around uh, running. Like uh, when I was in high school, cross country, as I mentioned, soccer, uh, doing a lot of martial arts growing up and, and doing sports of that nature. I, I'm so intrigued to find out how that then journey obviously moves into that. And we'll get to that. Uh, Malcolm, for yourself, I mean, we don't generally ask this question to our guests on this show because we're often talking to Olympians and athletes, but for yourself, becoming a doctor, was this something that you grew up always uh, wanting to achieve and then also getting into to plastic surgery as well? Was that sort of always a, a goal or did you sort of just transition to that at one point during your medical career? No, well, that is a good question. I, I, um, I did, uh, came to... The field of medicine, I guess, pretty straightforward. Um, I was born uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. My uh, my parents were just wonderful people, and my father was in business, and and they always uh, uh, wanted me to achieve, you know, whatever I wanted, and and supported me and helped me in that way. I really liked science. Uh, I was the kind of the kid who would uh, find a dead rabbit on the out in the field and kind of would dissect it because I was interested in seeing what was inside. And uh, I just went through um, high school and then through uh, uh, my university training, uh, University of uh, North Carolina, and decided that uh, I was going to major in political science, which had nothing to do with medicine necessarily, but it did have the word science at the end. And uh, But I, I did take all the required uh, scientific and um, requirements like physics and biology and biochemistry and all those things. And then when I applied for medical school, um, uh, my uh, at my interviews, they always said, well, you know, why, why did you 
major in political science when all your competitors, everything, all these uh, other people are majoring in other things like, uh, you know, anatomy and physiology and things of that sort. And I said, well, you know, I, I wanted to have a general overall education and I'm glad I did that because um, it, it served me well. And, uh, but I then went to medical school and, and then continued on um, uh, going to be a surgeon and because I like fixing things and, uh, and I like dealing with people. And uh, so to be a plastic surgeon, at least in America, uh, we have to go through full training in general surgery. So taking care of uh, gunshot wounds and trauma and, and uh, all those kinds of uh, situations with gallbladders and cancer and uh, situations like that. Uh, but then subsequently, to be a plastic surgeon, you continue on for another two or three years. So basically, you're about 34 years old or 35 when you're finished all your training, uh, because in plastic and reconstructive surgery, basically, uh, I define it as uh, the surgery of the skin of the body and all of its contents, because we work on all of the contents. So we do reconstruction in all those situations, including surgery of the hand and dealing with uh, babies with congenital anomalies, cleft lips and cleft palates and trauma and muscle flaps and, and reconstructing uh, uh, cancer patients, breast cancer and uh, all types of cancers around the head and neck and the chest and so on and so forth. So uh, I'm doing exactly what I always dreamed I would be doing and, and love doing it every single day. Fantastic. Always good to hear that that's sort of uh, how it can all turn out. I mean, before we obviously get to what happened in 1986, just one quick question for you, Cliff, again, with what you were talking about with your athletic sort of career, what you were doing before the accident, was it something that you were growing up wanting to become a professional athlete, go to an Olympics? Was this something that you were aspired to before what happened in 1986? Uh, I think that the the best answer for that would be no. Uh, I mean, I had dreams about, you know, competing in a large arena uh, when I was a young little kid, but I really never knew what that was. I was always a, I would classify myself as a mediocre type of athlete. Uh, but, you know, there was uh, one of the things that I did have a lot were there was a lot of mentors uh, that I had around me and I just dreamt really big, uh, whether it was tangible or intangible. Uh, I was influenced by a lot of people in my life growing up. So I had a lot of role models and people that I wanted to be. Uh, was I ever going to get there? That was really a question, you know, in terms of putting that all together later on in my life. But, you know, right out of the blocks, uh, you know, I was just a young kid uh, doing sports and and uh, and doing things of that nature. And ultimately, that's why I was like to say that. I got involved in sprint kayaking because it was an accident. You know, it was something that I ended up going to uh, because I didn't have any other opportunities. And it was a, a perfect opportunity for me to be able to go to a place and be a part of something. Speaking of the accident, um, 1986, you're 20 years old. You're, you're working as an apprentice on a construction site. Um, tell us the story from there, Cliff. Uh, what, what happened and kind of set you on this path that uh, ultimately would take you to to olympics yeah so the, i think uh, you know reflecting back uh, as to you know kind of setting the stage as to who i was at that time and what i was uh, what some of my you know aspirations were you know i was going to a community college uh, locally where i live and so i was trying to work on that side 
uh, I was offered a job opportunity uh, working for a construction company, which uh, obviously I took that venture, uh, but things started to materialize a little bit where there was opportunity that was provided to me because I think if I look back, it was probably because I was very determined uh, on the job, trying to want to perform the best that I could, you know, for not only myself, but for others. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I always like to say the apple do doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, both my parents, uh, you know, they were immigrants. Uh, they had to work very hard uh, at accomplishing and, and being able to put food on the table for my brother and I growing up. Uh, so it was one of those things that was a learned behavior from my parents. And uh, they had taught us well to be uh, very disciplined. And if you want to do the work uh, and you want to accomplish something, you're going to have to go through the process and do it in order to you know, be successful at it. So that kind of laid the foundation for me. Uh, I was provided an opportunity to be an apprentice. Uh, I was working as a plumber at the time. Uh, and that's kind of uh, where it all started and how I got involved in construction, kind of juggling a couple of things at the same time. Which I can imagine getting involved in something like that. You, you don't go into accepting an apprenticeship as a plumber going, well, this might take me to an Olympics one day. I mean, it's sort of not no. uh, a, a traditional path to uh, sprint kayaking, I can imagine, in the United States. Yeah, not at all. Uh, it, uh, But, you know, I think the thing about it is, is that, uh, you know, that's a great example and how that parlays into many of the other Olympians and Paralympians that are out there. Uh, typically, you really don't discover yourself until you have to go through extreme hardship and you have a chance to really look at in the mirror and identify, you know, the tools that you have rather than what you don't. So it's it's very common uh, across the Olympic platform uh, where there are people that, uh, you know, become, uh, you know, like I always say, we're all ordinary people with the ability to accomplish the extraordinary. It's it's something that's from the neck up. And a lot of times it, it takes an adversity for us to be able to accomplish the extraordinary. Just quickly, um, 1986, obviously two years removed from the Los Angeles Olympics. You're from California. Had you had an opportunity to witness the Olympics in, in person? Had you gotten swept up and everything? I mean, can you remember sort of 1984 at all, what that was like for Americans and Californians for the Olympics at that point? Oh, yeah, it was very exhilarating. I'm, I was born and raised in the beach town. So uh, I was throwing newspapers at that time because that was kind of my pre-job era as a kid. And I would deliver newspapers to this one gentleman. Uh, his name was Tom Hintonhouse, and he was a local pole vaulter uh, and our hometown hero that we had here uh, growing up in Manhattan Beach. So, you know, I always really looked up to him. And I think that the big changing point, and I always like to say, you know, that seed uh, got planted uh, when I uh, saw that Olympic torch uh, being, uh, you know, ran through uh, downtown Manhattan Beach. And I remember the tall ship parades were uh, going by at that time. And that was a very exhilarating time, uh, not only for me, but also for the community of uh, Manhattan Beach, where I grew up. Uh, and then, but also the city of Los Angeles. I mean, we're hosting an Olympics and it turned out to be a very successful Olympics. Yeah, very much so. Changed the entire Olympic movement. A lot of people obviously talk a lot about uh, what the LA Olympics yeah. in 84 did for the modern Olympics. For you, Malcolm, just quickly, 1986, you know, going based on what you were saying through your career, I mean, um, where were you at in 1986? You know, just before you met Cliff, before this friendship and everything started, I mean, kind of how was your career progressing at that point? Uh, in 1986, you're asking? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, in 1986, I was already 10 years uh, at UCLA as full-time professor and, and uh, 
doing all kinds of reconstructive surgery, uh, teaching residents, have uh, a major research laboratory going. So I had kind of three or four jobs going all at, all at the same time, none of which paid me very much, but, I'll, but did uh, cost uh, a lot of time and effort. Uh, but it, I was doing exactly what I uh, had dreamed of doing um, all along. Uh, going into plastic and reconstructive surgery, uh, kind of not not doing uh, very much uh, cosmetic surgery, which everybody thinks uh, is what plastic surgery is about, doing um, you know breasts and tummy tucks and facelifts and nose jobs, but uh, just the opposite. I did maybe 10% of those kinds of cases at that time. Now I'm doing 95% of those cases <laughs> wow. as, one's, uh, as one's career. Uh, you know, goes on, uh, the types of cases change. But uh, no, in 1986, uh, I was married at the time. I had uh, three children and uh, was working as a professor at UCLA, uh, teaching and and uh, having a huge practice at UCLA of uh, kind of solving problems uh, that others in reconstructive surgery and general surgery and other types of surgery uh, wouldn't or didn't um, attack. Had you gotten involved and swept up in Olympic fever a couple of years beforehand in 1994? If you're in California still in 1994, do you remember that period as well? Oh, yes. No, uh, definitely, because uh, it, it was uh, a fascinating time. I mean, uh, I was an athlete, if you want to call it that. I went to uh, uh, college on a football scholarship and played football until I uh, at North Carolina until I uh, ruined my shoulder uh, in my first year. And my parents said, uh, you know, why don't you settle down and, you know, be a student instead, <laughs> instead of an athlete or a student athlete. Uh, and I, I missed athletics. I mean, I always, uh, while I was in high school, I was on, you know, basketball team, the football team and the track team. But, but uh, when I went to college, I just played football. But uh, no, I, I follow athletics and in the Olympics, uh, just like everybody does, I think, and and uh, excited and inspired by them. Quite a famous uh, basketballer came from the University of North Carolina. Not sure if you were sort of around about there the same time as uh, Mr. Jordan. Was was that sort of around your period? Yeah, no, I, I left before. I left and I think I recruited him. No. <laughs> just, <laughs> just kidding. But, the the uh, truth is no. out. <laughs> yeah. He came, he came after me. But also uh, UCLA is pretty well known for their basketball also because yeah. uh, I think 11 or 12 straight uh, uh, NCAA championships with uh, Coach John Wooden, who, who actually was a patient of mine in his last year. He, he died just before he turned uh, 100, and I was asked to go visit him in his uh, in his apartment here in Westwood in, in Los Angeles uh, because he had an injury on his arm on his on his hand, and it was a real honor. I took uh, three or four or five of my residents and medical students with me just to meet this great man, uh, Mr. John Wooden, who passed away, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to sort of get that background to sort of learn where both your lives were at sort of uh, and when this obviously accident happened. So uh, Cliff, you're working on this construction site, you're doing some jackhammering and uh, then it, then it happens. Uh, let us know. Tell, explain the story from, from what happened. 
Well, I mean, it was just as you had said, uh, I was uh, working on the construction site, uh, operating a jackhammer, and I ended up hitting some uh, power lines, and then that was it, lights out. Uh, after that happened, that incident happened, uh, you know, for me, it was kind of touch and go at the time. Uh, I ended up having a cardiac arrest because of the large amount of electricity that had gone through my body. But essentially, you know, all of the uh, responsibilities and all of the worries and everything that kind of go along with that were thrown in the lap of uh, my mom and my dad. Uh, at the time, they essentially had to drive the bus. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate that I was resuscitated, uh, but I did uh, suffer some uh, exit wounds with electricity. Uh, you know, it behaves much differently than, for example, getting burned by a fire. Uh, it exits throughout the body. It's not, you know, from the outside in, it's from the inside out. Uh, so I was burned over 15% of the body, but I think may, most of that chaos uh, kind of happened, uh, you know, when my mother was alerted uh, after she got that telephone call from the superintendent on the job site saying that, you know, I was involved in this uh, bad accident and we don't know if Cliff's going to be able to live. So you can imagine uh, what a parent goes through at that time. And it's, and it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be an incident like that, but uh, you know, a lot of us go through adversity in life. Uh, we don't know, you know, what different types of shapes, sizes, and color the adversity is that we face, but we're all going to face adversity at some time in our life. And uh, we're going to have to get through the process. And it's a, a management process dealing with adverse situations or, you know, for a lot of the audience out there, it may be a goal that one may have, uh, a dream that one may have, but, uh, you know, it's an adversity. Uh, we have to face it. And I think that if we all take a couple of steps back and take a broad-based look at it, it's all about being able to manage difficulties and be able to, when you get knocked down, you dust yourself off and get back up. But, you know, initially it was a very difficult time for my mom because uh, she shows up in the trauma center and uh, she is, you know, dealt with these cards. Uh, and then she had to make some very big decisions at the time. Because I believe the accident sort of not only was it the electricity, but it sort of forced you back into the jackhammer itself, which did damage to your legs, which ultimately is what will lead you to meeting Malcolm. So, I mean, do you do you have memory of this? Is this something that, you know, you have memory of? Or is it a case of you, you hit the power lines and then you kind of wake up in hospital a couple of days later and go, Mum, Dad, what the hell just happened? Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> wow. I thought I was in a dream. I looked up, my parents were wearing these white coats and I had this uh, pain on my chest and really didn't know what it was. Uh, but one of my biggest concerns at the time is what happened to the coworker that I was working with, you know, uh, because, you know, we're a very close culture uh, on the job site. Uh, and I was very concerned about that. I had been intubated, so I was very uh, hoarse. Uh, in my voice at the time. But uh, the first thing that I did was uh, called him on the telephone. Obviously, I had my mother uh, make that telephone call, but, uh, you know, he was shocked. In fact, he thought that somebody was playing a joke on him. Uh, but I basically called uh, to tell him that, uh, you know, I had lived. But, uh, you know, this entire the scope of what actually had happened really didn't dawn on me at all. Uh, you know, my initial thing was I wanted to get out of bed. And my mother had told me at the time that, you know, I was involved in this severe incident and uh, you can't get out of bed and you can't walk. Because I can imagine reflecting on it now, as everyone does with age, you, you know, we think differently. We can look at moments like that and see it from, say, what your mother was thinking at the time. But I mean, you're 20 years old at the time. As you said, you're you wanted to get out of bed. You're thinking, oh, this is just this is just a scratch. You know, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be back at work tomorrow, which uh I can imagine in hindsight now you look back and go like, well, what was I thinking? 
Yeah, I think that uh, the realization of what you go through and what I had gone through at the time uh, didn't initially hit. I mean, I knew I was uh, injured and I knew I was in a bad accident, but learning towards what the magnitude of it was and how I was going to get through that slowly kind of crept up on me as time went on and on. So it was kind of, you know. So I was going to say 30,000 volts event basically had gone through your body. And that's essentially what five times greater than the electric chair, which is, I mean, insane to think that you can survive that. And then, as I said, the legs, obviously there was an issue there. Um, I believe your parents stepped in to obviously say, Hey, no, let's not amputate. Let's maybe look at some other options. And, and that is then what led to Malcolm coming involved in that. So, I mean, again, do you remember sort of, thought process at that point of the the possibility of losing your legs and are you on board obviously i can imagine with your parents like hey yeah absolutely let's look at other options before automatically we go to amputation yeah i mean i was absolutely not that coherent at all and this was probably about three and a half to four weeks after i had my accident Uh, i can remember very clearly three days in that time period everything else was kind of a fog uh, but, uh, but I do remember the moment very well, uh, you know, when, uh, that discussion was up, uh, and then, you know, my mother was faced with a, a big circumstance at the time. And, you know, my family learned from this, uh, process that, you know, this may possibly happen. I was going in and out of these various different surgical procedures where they were kind of debriding the various different areas of my burns, uh, and being able to do various different skin grafts, like on my back and my toes, Uh, In the back of the head, I had these areas patched up, but the biggest concern was what were they going to do with both of my knees? I had about a third of the knee compartment that was burned bilaterally on both legs. Uh, So that was always a big question as to what are they going to do? And I think the first time uh, that that became a big crisis was uh, my dad uh, and my brother, who's four years younger than I am. Uh, they were coming up in an elevator and these doctors had walked in uh, to the elevator and they're doing their, you know, chit chat for the day and they're talking. And then one of the doctors had said, hey, uh, did you hear about that kid up in the intensive care unit? And the doctors were talking about it. Uh, and my dad was standing in the back of the elevator, kind of really realizing, you know, what was happening. And the doctor has said that, well, there's probably a good chance they're going to have to do bilateral AKs. Uh, which is amputation above the knees. And, you know, you can imagine when that word got up to my mother, you know, that was always something uh, that they very much feared uh, that I would have to face. And so that became a reality. Which then, Malcolm, I'd love to hear the story about how then you got connected to this case, how how you were made aware of Cliff's situation and everything. Because, I mean, 1986, I can't imagine uh, something like Google doesn't exist back then, of course. So, <laughs> you know, Cliff's parents aren't just jumping online to do that. But, I mean, do you do you remember that initial contact when you were first made aware of the situation with, with Cliff? Uh, yes, I do, actually. Uh, but just to back up a little bit for your, uh, for your listeners, um, that uh, how electrical burns affect the body, because it is a little confusing. Uh, and I always mention that, uh, you know, there are, there are four different kinds of, of burns that one can, can, uh, uh, can sustain. Uh, one of them is the fire or, you know, the hot flames. Uh, everybody knows how people are uh, burned if their hand is too, you know, too close to the fire or whatever. Uh, it can happen that way. There are chemical burns, there are these very caustic uh, situations that people can come in contact with that affect the 
outer layers of our body, skin. There are uh, electrical burns such as uh, uh, what Cliff uh, sustained. And then you can also be burned by your girlfriend or by your wife, obviously, too. But that's, a, that's another story. story. That's, another that's, podcast. That's, that's much more difficult to correct. But as far as electrical burns are concerned, what happens is, is that at the point of entry, like uh, with uh, Cliff, with this metal object into the uh, electrical line, the energy of the electricity flows through your body. And just like uh, Cliff uh, mentioned earlier, it's an internal burn rather than an external burn. And so the, the energy of the electricity flows through your body through the points of least resistance. In other words, it flows through uh, soft tissue like muscle or nerves. Um, uh, and then lastly, bones. And then eventually it has to exit someplace. And in his particular case, because he fell down uh, uh, kind of next to the jackhammer and into this ditch, probably the back of his head touched the, uh, the dirt of the, of the ditch. And therefore he had some electrical energy pass out the back of his skull. It blew out one of his toes uh, from the actual energy uh, flowing down through his uh, lower extremities. Uh, he had some exit energy of the electrical, um, uh, burns of the electrical energy go out the, his back. But most of it actually, or a lot of it, went through his knees. And that's what he had suggested, uh, how they were injured specifically. Now, uh, so the doctors at the hospital where he was originally taken to uh, cared for these superficial areas that, that had been affected by the exit of this energy, the back of the skull, his toes, the, his back, so on and so forth. And uh, they were trying to address his lower extremities at the knee level. But because that joint is covered by just a little bit of skin, as we all know, and uh, that most likely um, received the most amount of energy because that's where an exit is. That's why people, by the way, die in the electric chair with much less energy because all this energy is confined and there's no exit. The exit is within the body and therefore heart stops, brain fries, so on and so forth. But uh, fortunately with Cliff, there was an exit and that's why he didn't die. Uh, I mean, he was severely injured. His heart was affected, obviously. And, and uh, well, we, we're still weren't wondering about his brain, but I think the brain is working pretty good. Right <laughs> so anyhow, the, the doctors, uh, after, uh, after this period of time, figured they were kind of stymied, and there wasn't anything that they could do about the knees, and so the lower extremities were basically useless, and so they decided that they were going to... Uh, remove uh, both of his uh, legs above the knee. And therefore he would need a prosthesis uh, that is kind of difficult to manage uh, in, you know, for a whole lifetime. So uh, at the time I was in my clinic at UCLA seeing patients and uh, I got a phone call from this lady and, and uh, it was his mother. And she said that uh, her son was in this predicament and was in this hospital kind of in about uh, 30 or 40 miles away from where UCLA is uh, down in the South Bay and uh, that they had plans the following morning to have both of his legs amputated. 
could I do anything? I said, well, hey, that's a pretty tall order. And, and uh, not sure uh, what I could do, but I don't work at that hospital, so we'll have to find somebody else. Evidently, she heard that I was doing all this kind of crazy surgery uh, uh, that was somewhat innovative, at least at the time, uh, not anymore, uh, obviously. And uh, I said, well, I, you know, I can't go. And then uh, I think we, we basically said goodbye to one another. And then I think five minute, minutes later, I'm not exactly sure, but she called back and she was crying and said, please come and see my son and so on and so forth. And so uh, I, I acquiesced and I said, okay, I'll come down there and visit him just as a, as a family member, really, and see if there's something that I could do. And so that's my recollection of that uh, moment. And at that point, you're talking about sort of doing some things that maybe were, you know, experimental at the time. Had you come across a case like this before? Is that sort of where maybe you were a bit more intrigued to have a look at it or at least visit to kind of see if this is something that you could do? Or is this something you'd never come across before at the time? Well, uh, in, in plastic reconstructive surgery, there, there are many ways of skinning a cat, so to speak. And, and that is that uh, I'm always trying to think out of the box. I'm always trying to think of faster and, and more um, efficient ways of doing a particular procedure. I mean, if you look in any plastic surgery textbook, many of these procedures, uh, not this particular procedure, but many procedures are all written and, and described, and so one can go by the book, uh, so to speak. But uh, if you think out of the box and try to improve on, on a particular procedure by doing something a little bit different or more efficiently, then that possibly could help. Uh, this particular procedure that, uh, that I did on Chris, uh, Chris Cliff uh, was not particularly uh, my invention or anything like that, but it wasn't done very much at that at that time. Uh, so I cannot take credit for inventing this. I have invented maybe 10 or 12 different procedures that others uh, had not done before. But I think she had heard about um, a paper that I had written because I had uh, actually, I had done something first in the world and that was uh, a young man who was 17 or 18 years old uh, had his leg amputated uh, in an accident. Uh, he was actually driving a a motor scooter, uh, and uh, he was brought to UCLA um, and uh, asked me to take care of him. Um, and his leg came in another ambulance. So there were two separate ambulances, one with the patient, the other with the leg. Wow. And uh, there had never been a, a replantation. In other words, a put back of a leg after it had been cut off. And so I was fortunate to do this only because I was naive and stupid and say, well, geez, I can do this, you know, and hook up the arteries and the veins and the bones and the tendons and the nerves. And uh, it turned out that it was the first one done in the world. And so wow. it was, uh, uh, and I published that in 1977, actually. And I think uh, maybe somebody had read something of my publications uh, and uh, had told her of this. And so she said, well, maybe this, this guy can do something on my son's leg. So I did, I did come down and, and visit um, Cliff while he was in the hospital um, at that time. Which, Cliff, you obviously mentioned some of that was a bit of a blur and everything that was going on, but do you remember the first meeting with Malcolm? 
Oh, absolutely. And it was a huge turning point in, in my entire process and my, you know, well-being. Uh, I remember that, uh, you know, Dr. Lesavoy was going to come and take a look at the legs. You know, I didn't, I know my mom went out on this quest, uh, but obviously I wasn't a part of that because I was in the hospital and she was out there uh, contacting, contacting Dr. Lesavoy. But I remember very clearly this one evening I was laying in bed, obviously very apprehensive about what was going to happen, you know, as a burn survivor, you know, one of the biggest risks are outside infections. So I had a cast all the way up to my hips and all the way down uh, to my ankles that were in, you know, enclosed all of my wounds. Uh, so I was a very fragile state. And so I knew that in order to look at these things, uh, one was going to have to open up these casts and all that. Uh, but I, the first thing I do remember was, is that, uh, you know, when Dr. Lesavoy walked into the room, uh, you know, he did something very unique. He acknowledged, you know, my mom uh, and my dad that were sitting there and then kind of acknowledged the doctors, uh, but came directly to my bed uh, and put his hand on my shoulder. And he says, hi, Cliff, I'm Mal Lesavoy, and I'm here to take a look at your legs. And so for all of us in the audience, you know, you think that, uh, you know, uh, someone's going to walk in, you know, with the white coat and everything like that, like all doctors. And, uh, you know, he came in here with his jeans and his cowboy boots and he had big biceps and he still does <laughs> at the time. And uh, so this man walks into my life and puts his hand on my shoulder. And, you know, I like to always uh, refer to that as that was the initial flame uh, that he lit in my heart that there is just possibility, the possibility of this little ounce of hope that this man might be able to do some good and might be able to save my legs. And so that was a, a major turning point at that time, because, you know, a lot has to go into that equation. Uh, you know, uh, obviously he had the incredible skill set in order to perform the surgery. Uh, but for me at that time, I was hopeless. Uh, you know, I wanted to throw in the towel and I really didn't uh, see any hope uh, for my life at that time. Uh, I was very depressed. And all of a sudden, somebody enters your life and sparks uh, this hope in your heart that you might possibly be able to do some good and be able to save the legs. And, and that was my uh, initial meeting. And, and of course, uh, an examination I had to follow with that. And uh, Dr. Lesavoy said that, you know, he's going to take a look at my legs. And so he had to open up the cast. And I remember very clearly at that time, uh, you know, he had mentioned, you know, don't look down. And obviously I'm not very good at instructions. Uh, so I ended up looking down and there's two uh, very distinct things that I, I have a takeaway from that time point was one of them. Uh, even today, I still have that smell in my nose uh, of what that burned flesh still smelled like. Uh, and then obviously the second part was, is realizing the magnitude uh, of my injuries. At that point, I never really saw what my legs look like here uh, as, you know, the, as uh, Dr. Lesavoy was kind of hovering and doing the examination over my legs, I could actually see the entire exposed knee compartments uh, with just the bone being exposed there. And I knew at that time that uh, my life was going to be completely different. You know, the days of being able to do sports, uh, run on the beach. Uh, be a normal kid were completely out of the window. You know, I was going to have to reinvent myself at the time if I could even do that. Which I'm, I'm going to get back to what happened with the, the surgery and how everything uh, was able to go from that point in just a moment. But saying that, I mean, harrowing experience, was that something that you can then internalize, say, when you're at the Olympics or when you're pushing towards selection or when you've got something troubling you in your life that that is a point you can sort of reflect on to think, well, this is where I was to this is where I have become now. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we're faced as humans with adversity, uh, and any time that we can go through the process, it's a learning experience uh, for us. And it's a building block in order for us to be able to not only get through the process, but be able to accomplish the process. And I think that, you know, every step of the way, it was unique in itself, you know, all the way from having to have the surgery done to realizing the magnitude of the injury uh, faced with how am I going to get through this process? How am I going to be able to learn and walk again uh, to kind of getting back to trying to get back into a normal life? And then uh, as the rest goes on, it's history kind of. But, you know, looking back, each one of those segments are not only a learning process for an individual going through adversity, uh, but it's an important stepping stone of being able to feel what it was like going through that process and being able to take that hardship and applying it to other things that we're going to have to be faced with. You know, going through the surgery was one thing and then learning how to walk again. All of that was just an application of one to another to another. It's just taking micro steps uh, because, you know, we can't just go from A to Z and say, hey, I'm going to accomplish this goal or I'm going to get through this difficulty in life. It just doesn't work that way. We have to take the small steps. Oftentimes we have to take several steps back uh, before we can even move forward. But it's all a step by step process. So, Malcolm, I'd love to learn then from that initial consult to obviously saving the legs and everything that came from there. So give us a bit of an indication what you saw and then sort of what did you do then to be able to to save Cliff's legs? Uh, well, initially, um, well, not even initially, but the doctors there actually refused to release him because um, uh, they kind of, I don't know why, uh, maybe jealousy, maybe money, maybe insurance, maybe who, who knows? I, I really don't know why, but I, I uh, kind of uh, talked to them in a nice way and then in, in not such a nice way <laughs> to allow them to have me transfer Cliff up to UCLA so we could at least uh, attempt to um, do some reconstructive procedures to save these legs. And um, so they, they finally did acquiesce. And the following uh, morning, I guess it was that following morning, um, uh, they allowed him to be transferred up to UCLA. And then we operated on, on Cliff um, to, uh, to do some uh, reconstructive procedures. And I told the doctors at that time, listen, uh, you have nothing to lose. Uh, if we fail, and uh, and and I can't uh, cover this uh, area, and we can't save these legs, then I'll send him back, and you can take his legs off. But uh, aside from that, uh, you know, you have nothing to lose. Why why would you be obstinate and not not allow us to at least try? So uh, they they then allowed uh, Cliff to come, and uh, we went ahead and uh, did a number of procedures and. And we were uh, moderately, uh, actually pretty good, uh, successful. Basically, the surgery that I did was to get, uh, to debride all of the dead bone. It was all black and, and uh, burnt uh, from the exit injuries of the electrical injury. Uh, remove that dead bone and, uh, and then try to get good tissue, good independent vascularized tissue muscle, basically, from the back of his leg, the calf, 
called the gastrocnemius muscle and move that around uh, to the front of his knee to cover his joint, cover the, the dead bone, well, the dead bone we had removed uh, and what was left of the bone and then put a skin graft on top of this muscle. The whole basics in reconstructive surgery is nutrition, is to have some, some piece of soft tissue, either a piece of muscle or, um, uh, or skin or whatever, that has its own blood supply. And this muscle, the gastrocnemius muscle, our big calf muscle that we have, that uh, actually originates above the knee and continues on down to our ankle to flex our ankle, I can detach it from its distal uh, insertion, which is at the ankle area, and uh, lift it up based on its nerve and blood supply and move it around to the front of the knee uh, to cover this big space. And we did that on both of his legs. And then on top of that, because you just can't have raw muscle uh, exposed. Then we took uh, skin grafts from his thighs and uh, put that on top of the muscle. And that's basically what saved those, those legs. Wow. And then he needed some revisions, a few revisions afterwards. But the most important thing wasn't really the surgery. Surgery was pretty straightforward, to be very honest. And um, uh, But then following this was rehabilitation. And that is probably more difficult uh, than any of the surgical procedures that he had undergone and probably more difficult emotionally um, than anything that he had uh, ever in his entire life of 20 years, uh, you know, experienced. And that's, Which, that brings us to the next segment. Actually. Yeah. Well, before I, I find a little bit more about that rehabilitation, I mean, were you confident that you could save the legs? I mean, obviously you're fighting for it. You're saying, well, what have we got to lose? But were you confident that this could happen? Yeah, with, uh, my name is Les Savoy and uh, my parents instilled confidence in me. And I always kind of feel that I can fix anything. I can really fix anything. Um, and it's not for, it doesn't mean that I haven't failed and I've failed many times, but I learned from failures. And uh, this was a tremendous um, uh, challenge. And, uh, and uh, I wanted this challenge. I really did want this challenge. And especially for a 20-year-old kid, my God. I mean, it'd be terrible for him to have the rest of his life. Although there are many, many, many successful people with above-knee amputations. Not so many with bilateral above-knee amputations. But we're seeing, oh, my God. So sad uh, of our Americans and Australians, I'm sure, coming back from the wars, uh, missing both legs, missing both legs and an arm, uh, missing both arms and one leg, and, and have smiles on their faces and have persevered, uh, which is uh, it's unbelievable. The surgery is the most minor, most minute part of this entire story of Cliff Meidel. It's got nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Cliff Meidel. Well, this is where I want to hear a little bit more about Cliff post-surgery, the rehabilitation. I mean, give us an idea of, of the mindset going into that and sort of how long did this process take? Because you have to learn how to walk again, you know, something that we all, majority of us take for granted still to this day, things like that. I mean, obviously, as a 20-year-old, as a this is something you never thought you were going to face. 
Right. Well, that, yeah, that's true. Uh, But I think that going back to what Dr. Lesavoy had said, where, you know, the, after the surgery is the important part, but one has to really go back and reflect on one of the most important parts about this entire equation. Uh, It's his personality uh, and his ability to be able to, he always talks about, you know, uh, thinking outside the box. Uh, He's uh, one of the best at what he does. Uh, but he's also one of the best at being able to inspire other people to be the best that they can be. And I think that that's where that kinship came together. Uh, I talk about the first flame of hope when he walked into the room uh, when I was laying there hopeless uh, and he was able to provide the surgical uh, part of it. But the other part of it came when he saw me in my position, knowing uh, how difficult going through an adversity is and where he came up with that second flame of hope that he had lit in my heart, uh, where he challenged me. And he said, listen, you got to get through this. And he understood I was a very young kid at the time. uh, And and he said, you have to get through this. And in order to do this, you're going to have to learn how to walk. Uh, And he inspired me at that time to be able to just maximize myself and and do the best that I possibly can and take one step at a time. And that's how I interpreted that. And uh, that's when I basically went gung ho uh, and we made a bet. He says, uh, when do you want to get out of here? And I said, within four weeks. Uh, and he says, OK, well, you're going to have to go from a bed to a wheelchair. And that's kind of when the music stopped at that standpoint, because that was a realization that I'm never going to be able to do that. There's no possible way. How am I going to get from the bed to a wheelchair? Uh, when I had these jello-like muscles on both of my legs, uh, I was in a lot of pain. Uh, I had a, a lot of emotional hurdles uh, that I had to go through, but it was that persistence that he had at the time, knowing how to push my buttons in the right way to motivate me and inspire me to be able to be the best that I could be with what I had. Uh, and that's what he did, uh, point blank, hands down, uh, no argument to that at all whatsoever. He inspired me uh, to do that. And he essentially took off his uh, doctor's lap coat uh, and became that inspirer, that role model and that mentor for me to be able to be the best that I could be. And I took that uh, with all my might at that time in order to get through this adversity and ultimately uh, you know, to make a, a short story long, <laughs> I learned how to walk again, uh, but it wasn't easy. It was every day was a fight. Uh, every day was a struggle and every day was a failure. Uh, but uh, being able to be taught and guided through that, uh, if you manage these difficulties and you just keep working hard and pushing and pushing and pushing uh, through the pain and the difficulty, you will get through that adversity. And I think that after the four weeks Uh, Turning around and looking back, uh, being able to walk on these parallel bars uh, that just seemed to be completely doubtful in my mind, uh, I actually accomplished it. And I realized that if I could get through this, I'm going to be able to get through anything that I put my mind to, because that was a very painful process mentally, (laughs) along with the physical part of it. But, you know, to 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 say that, you know, Dr. Lesavoy provided this uh, incredible surgery There is hands down, no argument. Uh, He's the best at the best and he fixed my legs, but uh, he did a lot more than just that. He stepped in and was the mentor, was the role model and inspired me to be the best that I could be. And that was basically the launching point for me. Uh, Once I got through that, uh, I learned that uh, this skill set can be applied in many different facets of life. I wasn't walking around like Einstein and being able to to apply everything, but that learned behavior 
from going through that process initially, I was able to apply that in almost everything else that I did, whether it was continuing my rehabilitation or going to school or going back to school and, and getting an education or getting involved in sports or, you know, socializing amongst other people, which was a very tough process. I was very ashamed of who I was at the time. That all stemmed from that foundation of skill sets that I learned during that very first process. I was going to ask, was he wearing cowboy boots the whole time when he would come in and visit you? Because I kind of like this idea of doctors, you know, uh, dressing like that with, you know, some <laughs> bulging biceps and that sort of stuff. So California in the 80s was obviously a different world. <laughs> yeah, the cowboy boots, 100%. Oh, he's got he them on. Them. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. then. I like this. Yeah. This is a, this is a great way of doing that. Which, yeah. I mean, through all of that, at what point did it sort of click to you, or was this maybe a little bit after, that, you wanted to pursue something in the sporting realms and, and obviously led you into kayaking. I mean, was this something through all that rehabilitation and adversity that you wanted to set yourself another challenge? I mean, sort of how did that come about? Uh, well, it came through by accident, as I had mentioned before, uh, but it came through a lot of struggle. I was lost at the time. You know, as I mentioned, I was athletic growing up and I had a huge void uh, in my life. Now I had these knee mobilizers and, uh, you know, I had to learn how to walk again and reteach all of that. And I was going through a lot of struggle. Uh, you know, I was going through those stages of grievance where I was very angry and depressed. Uh, and I kind of had to find another way how to deal and cope with this all. And so my brother basically approached me and, you know, he essentially said, you know, take a look in the mirror and see what you have. And I had a very difficult time not only accepting me, uh, but understanding some of the skill sets and the tools that I had. And my brother Norm essentially said, you know, you can't use your legs, but you can use your upper body. You can use your brain. Uh, and you know, you could use that. Uh, why don't you get involved in outrigger canoe paddling? And in, for, at that point I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to go down and start canoeing around all these people. You know, I did it once I, when I was 16 for a little bit, uh, but, uh, you know, I did not want to go down there and have all these people judge and all of that stuff. It was just not what I wanted to do, but, uh, my brother was persistent. He got me to go down there. And I think that, you know, everything happens, you know, when you hear about these stories of overcoming adversity, uh, these are long processes. It's a long time that people go through adversity. Things don't happen right away and right off the bat. You just don't get those quick fix rewards. Uh, this was over a long period of time. And, you know, getting involved in this canoe club, uh, when I look back, it was a, a long process, a 10 year process. And yeah, I, I developed incredible friends and even, I still have them today and I socialize with them all the time. Uh, I was more fit than I ever had been in my life. I was exposed to a new sport. I had all these opportunities, but I think that if you're going to hit the, you know, the, the nail on the head with a hammer and say, what was that one thing that this sports provided for me at the time uh, was definitely being a part of something. You know, we all in life uh, want to be a part of something. We want to be accepted. Uh, we're all human beings. We're emotional. We're behavioral. And we want to be a part of something. And I think that's what that canoe club, it could have been bowling. It could have been anything. But, uh, you know, that application, uh, that innovation process, you know, Dr. Lesovoy talks a lot uh, about being innovative and thinking out, outside the box. Uh, that was my moment of being able to think outside the box was using the tools that I have and not worrying about what I didn't have. And that was all upper body and the canoe sport uh, was perfect for me. 
Uh, once I got involved in canoeing uh, for many years, uh, you know, I started off as a guppy. Uh, then ultimately, you know, I did uh, relatively well, but, you know, I had people inspire me and motivate me. And uh, and that's when I was introduced to the Olympic side of sprint canoe and kayak. Uh, very challenging sport. It's like balancing a ball bearing. Uh, you know, we have a, a combination between technique is one of the more technical sports in the Olympic Games, especially when you get to high kneel canoeing. It's got to be probably one of the most technical sports, in my opinion. Uh, but then you also have that combination of strength and endurance. And, and so you have this mold of all of this that's going into the sport. So it was a real challenge for me. I loved it. Uh, I was inspired uh, by Greg Barton, who was uh, an American Olympian and a hero of mine. I actually got to meet him at a couple of canoe races, which was a big deal for me. Uh, he had lower leg limitations or he has lower leg limitations and he became a two time Olympic champion. And that was a big inspiration. You know, I, I look back, uh, you know, at my life. And as I mentioned earlier in our in our podcast that I, I always dreamt big as a young little kid. In fact, you know, running down that ramp in seventh grade. Uh, dreaming about competing in this large arena, but never knowing what it was. Well, that realization and that reality came to uh, during the 1996 Olympics when I was walking down the ramp, you know, the oil was like blood. Uh, I was through this. I had this euphoric high, all these people screaming, you know, it was in home turf in the United States. Uh, and all of a sudden I realized that, oh my goodness, this is that moment that I always dreamt as a kid. Uh, but that could not have happened. Uh, I don't think if I wouldn't have gone through the adversity that I did, I'm not saying that I didn't have the caliber for being an Olympic athlete. I think I just didn't have the necessity to be able to dig really deep uh, into my heart and, and be able to come up with that determination, that motivation, that, that persistence and, and, and the, and the grit that it takes to get through adversity if I wouldn't have had that accident and uh, if I wouldn't have developed that relationship uh, with Dr. Lesseville. You know, I, I always say it's a relationship because, uh, you know, he was the incredible doctor, uh, but he really inspired me to be the best that I can be, uh, which is a very unique circumstance. And I was very fortunate uh, being able to have that uh, opportunity as a young man. It was a golden period for American canoeing around about that time with Greg, wasn't it? Because uh, it was. ultimately the uh, medal drought started, what, 92 until Nevin got gold last year. But, um, I mean, obviously yeah. uh, an amazing period for the sport in, in the country. I mean, Malcolm, I just quickly, just on everything that Cliff was saying, I mean, Cliff mentions about sort of it was a 10-year journey, but, I mean, I would flip that aside and go, it's incredible you can have an accident like that and then less than 10 years later compete at an Olympics. I mean witnessing his journey from that period to the moment he's sort of talking about there getting to Atlanta. I mean, did, were you confident that this was something knowing Cliff sort of getting to know him over those years? Were you confident that once he set himself at those sites that he was able to achieve that? And what was that moment like when you saw him make the Olympics after everything from that first moment to then seeing him walking out there in, in Atlanta? Oh, uh, <clears throat> talk about a rush. It, it really is a rush. Uh, but what really happened uh, is it's not exactly as, as uh, maybe you would think, but uh, I kept leaning on him to get, you know, uh, to start working out, to, to go from the bed to the wheelchair, from the wheelchair to parallel bars to start walking. And then after a while, uh, I don't know, Cliff, maybe you remember, but maybe, you know, three, four, five months or so, I would see you from time to time. And then I totally lost track, 
totally lost track of where. And 10 years later, 10 years later, uh, what, not even thinking about it, I mean, you know, it was the time of the Olympics in Atlanta, and uh, my phone starts ringing um, here in Los Angeles, and uh, people are calling me and say, now you gotta, you gotta turn on CBS or NBC, I can't remember, turn on the TV, there's this guy being interviewed in Atlanta who's an Olympian, who's an Olympian who says you saved his life, you, you saved his legs, you, you inspired him, and now he's an Olympian. And I turn the TV on, there's Cliff Meidel, uh, you know, being interviewed, uh, you know, by all these people on a number of occasions. Well, after the Atlanta Olympics, uh, and he competed so, so wonderfully, uh, we reconnected and uh, we really reconnected. I mean, we were connected before, but now, now he's, uh, what, uh, 30 years old at the time at Atlanta? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we reconnect. And um, he's, I mean, he's one of my best friends and, and we continue to, to uh, connect and, and I'm inspired by him. Fantastic. <laughs> Truly. I mean, just think of, just think of what this man has gone through. Yeah. Uh, forget the physical problems, but my God, the emotional problems, the cardiac fortitude that, that this man has. And uh, uh, we've taken trips together. We've lectured together. And uh, four years later, I mean, my goodness, uh, and in Sydney at the Sydney Olympics at the opening ceremonies, as you already uh, have uh, have alluded to, 600 um, member United States Olympic team votes for one person to carry that flag. And who do they vote for? This guy, Cliff Meidel. I mean, from Manhattan Beach, California, you talk about biceps. His biceps are between his ears, and that's where his strength is. Uh, his 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 brain, his his heart, uh, and he's an inspiration to everybody that he talks to. Everybody. And he Absolutely goes around the country. Now. He goes around the country now, and he's he's a, a um, an inspirational speaker. And anybody that meets him, and anybody that watches this podcast, can can feel. The energy that he exudes, the the confidence that he exudes, and uh, I'm not around him enough because I, I need I need to be inspired uh, just just so much by being. The bromance needs to always grow. That's basically what it, it is, is, right? It's it's, it it's got I I agree. <laughs> I accept it. Always a bromance, Cliff. Just just quickly on that, um, I actually, being the Olympic geek that I am, I have way too many you know videos of the olympics in the past i have the opening ceremony from sydney and i just watched it before this interview just to get the uh, australian reaction of what they were saying about you as you entered the stadium and our commentators were you know obviously telling the inspiring story so it was you know being told here in australia and everything as well but i mean i i can imagine we could sit here for the next hour talking about what that's like to walk in that stadium but i mean just that honor of being voted to carry that flag i mean is that the moment in your life that stands above many of of kind of you know almost the biggest honor and going back to what we're saying from where you were staring at your your exposed bone essentially to all of a sudden walking out in front of 110,000 people with billions of people watching around the world carrying you know the the flag of your country to represent you in, in the world 
Yeah, exactly. The most honorable time in my life uh, with that recognition. Uh, definitely that was for me. I know I was kind of nervous at the time because, you know, here I'm holding this pole and I remember with the American flag, I was so proud and honored to be able to carry the flag. And I remember that there was a lot of chaos going on. And the only thing that I could think about at that time was whatever you do, Cliff, don't trip because I still walk (laughs) like Bambi, right? I still got a limp. And so I had to be very careful because as you know, there was carpet all over yeah. the, the the entire field because they had to protect the field. So there was these folds every once in a while. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know, don't do that. <laughs> and, but here I stood, I was very nervous, uh, you know, at the time, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people are, but at the same time, just filled with all this pride and this incredible honor. And, and I was reflect, my mind was going back and forth, uh, you know, 10 years back, you know, Uh, or at that time, 14 years back, thinking about, you know, what I had gone through. And here I am with this incredible honor. I remember taking this deep breath and I ended up looking over my shoulder and I turned around and looked back. And the only thing I could see for about a quarter of a mile coming out of that tunnel was a sea of red, white, and blue. It was the entire United States delegation uh, following me in. And I was just so proud and so honored. And then at the same time, yeah, you know, I'm very thankful to uh, all of my fellow Olympians and all that for allowing me to bestow that honor. You know, I was very fortunate. Uh, I think I was the first uh, canoe kayaker to carry the flag uh, for the United States uh, in Sydney. And uh, I will always have that honor, you know, and it's an incredible alumni to be a part of. Do you get to keep the flag? I know it's probably a dumb question, but like, what happens to like? I know they put it sort of all on display, but does they come to you after the games and go, "Hey, Cliff, this is the flag you carried. This is yours to keep." No, you you have to you. Everybody meets uh, by the stage there, and everybody has to give the flag to uh, the organizing committee there, and they put it all together. So all the flags are are flying together in unity. Uh, the only thing that I kept was the uh, sash that you wear to hold the flag. So I have this thing in my drawer at home and the I've always thought to myself, maybe I should get it embroidered and, you know, Sydney 2000 as a remembrance as I get older. But the thing about it is, is that uh, I guess it's an extreme value to me. Uh, but uh, I don't know what it is. I'd love to do that and and put it kind of in a little bit of a case uh, so I can always remember that. But uh, for me, that was uh, pure pride and honor to be able to to represent our country. Did you get the invite, Malcolm, to go along to Sydney to to watch him at all? Or, or were you sitting on your couch? I don't know. probably would have been about like four in the morning or something for you. I can imagine watching that, uh, you know, given the time difference between Australia and uh, the US. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was watching it and, uh, you know, cheering for everybody, really. You know, for, I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful thing every four years. But knowing somebody, actually being in the Olympic Games and knowing this incredible man uh, who is with the entire delegation of, uh, of America who, who honored him with this situation of carrying the flag was just, uh, just, it's just mind blowing, truly mind. It's such an incredible story. And I'm so honored to be able to have you both on the show today to, to share it and, and learn more about it. But obviously people who are watching or listening to this right now, if they want to learn more, stay up to date with 
what you guys are, are doing. Of course, even if you're in the US maybe and want to organize you to come and speak somewhere. I mean, twosparksofinspiration.com is, is the website. Is there anywhere else uh, that people can follow this journey? Cliff, yourself, social media, things like that, that people can stay up to date with what you've got going on out there? Yeah, uh, Dr. Lesfo and I, we, as you mentioned, we have two sparks. Uh, so go to our Instagram page and you could uh, get a hold of us there through messaging. Uh, for me, go to cliffmidal.com. Uh, and you could get a hold of me or just Google my name. And uh, same thing with uh, Dr. Lesavoy uh, at Lesavoy Plastic Surgery, right? Yep. That, yep. That, you answer my next question. I was going to say, if you're in if you're in California and need some surgery done, uh, <laughs> I mean, we need to get you some more of this. Uh, you know, sure. uh, do you want more of the reasons like back what you're doing in the 80s versus the, the, the breast enhancements and things like that? Or are you you're happy doing that now? I mean, I don't know. Plug right now what you want to do out there. <laughs> You're talking, about, you're talking to me? Yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, I don't know if Cliff's got his uh, plastic oh, yeah. surgery. Oh, I mean, he, he, he's doing that too. I mean, we'll give him a call. Yeah. As well. <laughs> uh, I need some. <laughs> no, I do. I do miss. I do miss the uh, the innovative stuff that I that I used to do quite a bit of. Now I'm doing basically things to survive financially, which is basically aesthetic surgery, facelifts and breasts and tummy tucks and nose jobs, things of that sort. But um, I do from time to time. I do have lots of uh, people around the, the country and actually around the world um, conferring and consulting with me. And so uh, I do enjoy that. And from time to time, I have uh, these very difficult uh, reconstructive procedures or fixing other problems uh, that other surgeons have. So I do enjoy the challenges. Well, we're enjoyed having you both on the show today learning more about this incredible story guys thank you so much for joining us here and off the podium and uh best of luck for both of you uh with everything moving forward thank you very thank much you. thank you for having us we appreciate it and a massive thanks to both malcolm and to cliff there as well uh an incredible chat inspirational everything else in between and uh insane to think that you can go through such a, an incredibly harrowing incident and then essentially go on to become a two-time olympian it's uh very inspirational i'm sure everybody listening to this uh got a, a little bit of inspiration today no matter where you're listening so uh Big thanks to uh, both Cliff and Malcolm for joining us. Of course, if you do want to see the video version of this, you can uh, hit us up on YouTube. And uh, that way you can also see all of our other video interviews as well. A different perspective should you uh, wish to uh, watch rather than just listen. So uh, that is a new way of doing it there. But yes, thanks to both Cliff and Malcolm for joining us. And a special shout out to, to Helen for uh, organizing that for us on the show today. We have plenty more great interviews coming up in the coming weeks. We are on a nice string of things on right now and we have plenty coming, dropping every Friday, of course. And if you want to stay up to date with all the interviews that we've got going, the easiest way is to subscribe to our podcast, wherever good podcasts are available. Search for Off The Podium, smash the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Give us a rating and all of that helps us, of course, be seen and heard by more listeners and people around the world 
and we would very much appreciate the support. And of course, social media as well, where you can also stay up to date with everything that we have got going on. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, as I mentioned. Send us a message, let us know what you think of the show. If you've got a request for any guests down the line that you'd like us to get on, give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you, and we always appreciate your support out there. It means the world to us. Thanks again to Cliff, thanks again to Malcolm and we will be back next week. A special shout out as always to the Birmingham Bull and until we next speak again, my name is Ben, this is Off the Podium and remember to go left. Go left.